Welcome to episode 13 of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Leo Cooper Jepson, and I'm glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is essentially my creative response to that desire. My intention was to put a podcast out every week with a new chapter that I'd be reading aloud and then riffing a bit at the end of the chapter about what I've learned since writing it. While that intention still holds, the frequency with which I'm able to realistically put these episodes out here has changed a little bit over time. So thanks for you who have come along the journey with me. And as long as I keep hearing from you that you're getting something out of these podcasts, I'll keep putting them out there. And we'll see where it goes from there. If you want to follow this podcast, subscribe to it via iTunes or Follow it on SoundCloud so it'll magically appear in your podcast feed every time I put up a new post. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll also see the episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 13. Truth in Anger. Anger is energizing. The opposite of anger is depression, which is anger turned inward. That's a quote by Gloria Steinem. Why is it that when a woman gets angry, she is shamed? Nothing shuts me up faster than being accused of being angry. And I do mean accused, because it feels just like that, a charge of misbehavior, caught red-handed for excessive expression of passion, overstepping a boundary. In writing this, I can feel the heat start to rise up the back of my neck, telling me I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, stuck, silenced, stewing. I have been told in many ways over the years that I am angry, but it all basically boils down to one pointed accusation, followed by an order to cease and desist. You're angry. Stop it immediately. I used to believe it, choosing to see that side of myself as the part of me that's a warrior, a fighter, outspoken, strong-willed, and in-your-face, if need be. From a young age, I had the impression that I need to get on with those issues and stay on them or else. Or else what? Something bad will happen? I never asked. I just swallowed that message whole, promising myself that I would learn to manage that unseemly stain on my character so others wouldn't see it. In my quiet moments, I harbored a fair amount of shame around this. Clearly, this is not a desirable trait for a girl who later became a woman to have. Long before I identified with being a feminist, I felt that angry feminist moniker attached to me when I would take a stand and publicly voice my opinion, especially dissent. I often joke that my family doesn't do anger. Hurt? Wounded? Disappointment? Those were served up freely, but anger? It didn't even get invited into the house like the apple cider left on the back porch, the kind that starts to ferment and develop a bite. That became really evident when my parents started talking about getting a divorce. It was as if all the unexpressed anger from their 18-year marriage, as well as from their childhoods, I'm sure, came rocketing to the surface, spewing out into, into our lives like hot lava from a bottomless volcano. This was the early 80s, mind you, and no one I knew had their parents had parents that were getting divorced. So our household became a bit notorious, 
as if we had a fatal contagion floating in our midst, and eventually none of my friends were allowed to come over. It was that bad. I was learning two lessons simultaneously, and try as I might, I couldn't reconcile them in my 12-year-old body. One, if you're a really good person, you shouldn't feel anger. And two, anger is a very real thing, and when it's kept inside for years, it finally comes out in really unhealthy, hurtful, and unproductive ways, and it's embarrassing for others to see. These contradictions muddied my water when I felt anger. Most of my life, I've gotten messages that I'm too much, which, in interestingly enough, also gave me the sensation that I was not enough, lacking that elusive something, patience, compassion, forgiveness, tolerance, that would have remedied the situation. As a little girl, I was told countless occasions to pipe down, relax, cool your jets. As a young woman, I graduated to more sophisticated remonstrations, like calm down and don't get so worked up about it and be nice. I noticed that people seem to dispense with the niceties altogether and refer to me as mean or vicious. I know this is a common story for women. Having heard my own experience reflected back to me time and time again by my clients. The first clue is when I hear a woman say, it's so interesting or how fascinating as if she's looking objectively at a sculpture in a sterile museum, marveling at how the artist got it just to look just so. Peel back the layers of that initial conversation, and you'll often hear, it's just so confusing to me. I don't understand why that is. The situation, that person, that dynamic. Scratch beneath the, the dirt a bit, and you'll start to hear, I'm just really disappointed. Under that layer is often, it's really frustrating. And like one of those little Russian nesting dolls, inside that lives, I'm really upset about it. And then ultimately, I'm fucking pissed. So many layers to dig through to get to the truth. No wonder so many of us give up and stay on the surface. I think anger is one of the most misunderstood emotions we have because it spends so little time in the light of day. It's shunned and left to fend for itself in its dark cave, mumbling and scuffing up dirt in frustration like a petulant child. I don't blame it. I'd be ornery too if I were that devalued and misunderstood. Because at its essence, anger is really just another form of energy. It's an emotion with Tabasco sauce splashed on top. And it generally has something for us to hear, something that's coming from a deep and meaningful place. I've been tracking anger for a while now in myself and my, in my clients, and I've come to actually appreciate it more, and here's why. It signals passion, conviction, and a willingness to take a stand, draw, the, draw a line, speak up. A woman giving vo voice to her anger is a powerful thing to witness, a force for change. But as often is the as is often the case with women, it usually takes a series of messages or even events to attach and accumulate on us, like those pesky dryer sheets clinging to the backs of our shirts or nestled inside our pant legs. They adhere to us with static electricity and wait to be discovered. That happened to me a while ago. There I was, minding my own business, happily reading a book in bed just before falling asleep. As my eyes moved across the lines of the page, they suddenly came to a screeching halt at the phrase, Righteous Anger. 
At first, I thought it was just an ocular hitch, and I would try to keep and I would try to keep reading ahead. Then one sentence later, I found myself back again, staring at it. Righteous anger. I tried to move past it again. No luck, still stuck. It took me a while, but finally I got curious. What was it about that phrase that was grabbing me and not letting me go? Then it hit me, and I heard myself utter one word. Shit. I haven't had any contact with my father since the early 90s. There's a huge story there, and many hours of therapy have been logged as a result, so you can imagine the eye-rolling fit I had upon having this well-chewed little morsel rolling around in my palate once again. It was like a cosmic boomerang clonking me on the back of the head again. I have a fair amount of shame around this. I don't wear it on my sleeve, primarily because I'm tired of it. That last part is an excuse, by the way. It really, it really is about the shame. I thought I'd moved past this anger, all but convincing myself I had somehow made peace with not having had a relationship with my father. After all, I had this great excuse. I already had a dad. I don't need two. When I was 12, my mom met and fell deeply in love with a man who would later become my stepdad. I have always believed he is my real dad. He raised me. He loved me fiercely when I needed it most. He was and continues to be my biggest champion. He showed me how a dad loves a daughter, and I learned how to love a dad. I looked at my boys every day and my beloved who helped me create them, and I thank heavens for those lessons. About five years ago, in a heartfelt show of love for my stepdad, I even created an adoption certificate, retroactive to the day we met, and we celebrated making it official with our family, compete with the cake, flowers, and It's a Girl balloons. So why was I staring at this phrase in my book thinking about my father again? Clearly there was more for me to consider. This message had found me and stuck to my psyche and would not let me go. So I made a decision. I got up and I wrote my father a letter that opened the door to him that I had previously closed out of hurt, anger, and bitterness. I knew what I was doing was allowing the righteous anger inside me to be released. The letter wasn't about my father. It was about me and my door. With that single act, I made a powerful discovery. When messages such as these knock at our doors, we don't have to brace ourselves for hours of intense thought or work, as I had previously believed. Sometimes, a simple action is all that is needed. I suspect this message from the universe had been hiding in plain sight. There can be a catch, though, and it's pretty difficult to see with a naked eye. Weeks after sending this invitation to my father, I received a response that said basically, thanks, but no thanks. Upon reading this, I thought I felt some peace, having opened a door and finally accepted that he would never walk through it. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I was just fooling myself again, serving instead to only feed the righteous anger that was so deeply embedded in my sinews. See, told you so. You have a right to be angry. The ball was in his court, but he didn't pick it up. He's to blame. What a fool I was to fall for that old trap again. I should have known, but I simply didn't. It wasn't until one snowy gray day in February, nearly three years later, that I finally got it. 
My sister had maintained a relationship with my father, however difficult it had been for her. Sometimes it felt like a bone of contention between us, having me wonder if she was somehow more noble, more highly evolved, and better than I was, as she was able to somehow transcend all that bullshit and rise above it. But then I thought of her geographic distance between her and my father and assumed it was somehow easier for her because of all this. What bullshit, I was telling myself. Thankfully, my sister, like me, has a crackerjack intuition and reached through all that bullshit when she got the news. The text came from her on that February morning. I hope it's okay that I let you know this, but Dad is having brain surgery tomorrow. He's been falling down a lot, and apparently his brain is bleeding quite a bit. Thought you'd want to know. I knew she had taken the risk in reaching out to me with that news, as our patent agreement had been sort of a don't-ask-don't-tell arrangement regarding our father, wherein I would not probe into her relationship with him, and she would not offer information about me to my father, should he ask. For the most part, the arrangement had helped our long-distance relationship survive. But this day, she broke the rules, and in that moment, I knew in my bones how right she was to do it. I could just feel the rightness pour into me like warm honey. I quickly responded to her text, thanking her for honoring her intuition and asking her to keep me posted. I sat down on the arm of the red, our red couch, filled with a sudden need to drop lower to the ground. My eldest son walked by and saw me sitting there. Mom, he asked. I gave him what I suspected was a rather wan smile for noticing and caring enough to ask, and then I responded honestly. I just heard from Auntie Manda. It's my dad. He's apparently having brain surgery. It doesn't look so good right now, bud. He sat down, too, because he'd never met this elusive father figure of mine that he'd heard so much about and, as a result, had this sort of fixation on him. A mixed brew of unrequited curiosity, a burgeoning desire to make it all better, and a devout loyalty to stand by my side in solidarity. At that moment, it was all a bit much for his twelve for a twelve-year-old body, and he started sobbing. I want to meet him, Mom. That comment ran like ice water up from my warm spine, causing me to abruptly stand up and start busying myself in getting the kids ready for school, effectively sending the message, well, that's enough of that nonsense. Let's move on. As I puttered around the kitchen, watching him over there, still sitting, I muttered something about the reality of the situation and lobbed some soured words in his direction about how if my dad wanted to meet him, he would have made a point to do so by now. Talk about a shameful moment as a mother. There I was, transferring my pain and fear and stories onto my child, as if they were his to own. Maybe I was hoping it would make it all stop, cauterizing the wound in myself that had never quite healed. Thankfully, in a moment of grace, I saw the truth in what I was doing. I turned around and faced him, saying, I don't know if that's actually true. That's my story, not yours. It was my pain talking. That's when I cracked open and finally arrived at the gooey middle of my heart. All these years, I thought I had been protecting it, when all I had been doing was keeping it solidly encased, cut off from daylight and fresh air. I was without a car that morning after I dropped it off the previous night at a neighborhood repair shop. So after the kids left for school, I bundled up in my warmest jacket, mittens, and wool scarf to brave the frigid five-degree morning with our dog on a mile-long walk to the car. Talk about bracing air. 
It was on that walk that the final alchemy crystallized as I talked to my father in my head. Little did I know at that moment he was actually in surgery, having taken a turn for the worse, and was, most likely, hanging out in that thin veil between life and death, deciding which was the more attractive option. Before I even took off my coat when I got home, I turned on the computer and wrote a letter, the one I thought I had written before, but never had. All the others hadn't been about me opening the door to him. They'd been about me putting a chain on the door and then opening a crack through which I pushed out all my conditions and qualifications and terms that would need to be met before the chain came off. But this one was different. It flowed and was pure heart. In fact, it was all heart. I spoke plainly and not only opened the door, but took off its hinges and tossed it aside. And I sent that letter. Two days later, I got a call from his wife, the stepmother I'd only met once at their wedding when I was 15. She let me know that she had received my letter and she was going to bring to read to him in the hospital the following day. It was a lovely conversation, actually, considering we were this weird hybrid of stranger relatives. But here's the coolest part. The charge was gone. That all-too-familiar sensation I had... I usually had in my body when this topic came up around my father, the one that had me feel vigilant and alert, twitchy and ready for just about anything. It was just gone, as if, some, as if it had been vacuumed right out of me while I was sleeping. I thought to myself, oh, so this is what peace feels like. I had no idea. And now I do. Thanks to my anger, I might add. Because inside my anger were many things, my pain, my stories, my past, my excuses, my truth. But ultimately, at the core of it was my heart, which is where the peace had been living all along, patiently waiting to be opened. So that's chapter 13 of my book, Truth in Anger. And here's a bit of a reflection that I have had, that I'm having um, since I've written that chapter. And it's very apropos that I'm reading this chapter aloud now because this past weekend, hundreds of thousands of women gathered all around the country, all around the world, for a very historic event, the Women's March that happened. And, you know, you talk about that phrase, angry feminist, and how I could feel that moniker and how that association of any woman who is filled with anger is some, someone to be shamed. And, and my experience leading up to this march, and then while I wasn't in the D.C. march, I marched in Portland, Maine, with 10,000 men and women who came out for that day. And a number of women commented, and what I noticed was that... The, half the people that marched, um, at least half of them were men. And so women's rage and women's anger around this past election and the rights around our bodies being, um, being called into question and the trust of a woman leading. And there's so much around um, the world today that has women just stepping over their shame and expressing their anger, that it is coming out in really collective, powerful, 
um, beautiful, beautiful ways. So when I read the signs, and many of you, I'm sure, were participating in marches all over the country. So when I read those signs, it was so refreshing to see anger and rage expressed in bright colors and held on tall sticks publicly marched down main streets of our towns and cities. So something is shifting in us. And I wrote about this recently in my own, uh, this is a constant um, conversation I'm having with myself because, um, yeah, there's so much that I just want to change. At times it feels like a fight and at times it does begin with injustice and um, you know, the sense that something's not right and the sense it creates anger. And so I wrote about this recently in a blog post. You can check it. I think it was in December that talked about um, anger advocacy. And I told an example of, you know, after the election, I was driving with my son in the car and I made a weird turn or something and my son corrected me and I lashed out at him um, again, sort of sideways anger coming out. Um, and he, he shut down and, and I had to think about it a lot and I processed it in the blog post and you can read more about it. But the bottom line is I really got clear that it's not okay in this society. It's not okay for a woman to express her anger. And for me, that's not okay. Because anger is a, is, a, is a human emotion. It's different than violence. Too, too often we associate the two. We make them synonymous, anger and violence. But anger is, can be a very, as Gloria Steinem quote that started this chapter, anger can be a really productive, um, it can be rocket fuel, and it, it can be connected to your heart, part and parcel, to create some really powerful change. Um, and as I talked about in that blog post, anger is here, like it or not, or not, it is, it is the thing that will not go away, like that game of whack-a-mole that you just keep whacking it down and it just keeps popping up again. And I'm happy to see that nowadays it is popping up all over the place and it's um, refreshing to see it. So my main message in that blog post was that anger is not something we need to manage. I actually think anger is something that we need to practice, especially as women, to practice expressing it because I think we're out of practice having kept it inside us for so long. And then the invitation was also at the end of this chapter, I, I talk about in uh, so much of my writing, this is such a big topic, the intersection of anger and shame and judgment, judging others, um, that if you can um, own your own anger, which requires naming it and creating space to be with it and authenticating it and sanctioning it and allowing your anger to be right versus wrong, you will heal the shame that you might be feeling around anger, much as, as, as I related to in this chapter. When you heal the shame from that anger, what you might find, what I have found and what I see play out with my clients, is once you heal it and you do not have it um, 
you're not keeping that anger in the darkness, but you've actually brought it into the light of day and you've said it deserves to be here. You're allowed to be here. That's very healing and shame can't exist in the light of day. When you heal that anger, what I've also noticed is that the judgment that you might be finding for someone else that being judgmental of another woman, being super critical of another woman, that goes away, that goes down, that noise. And I know there's shame around that. We feel we're very, very critical of each other. Certainly the media loves that about us. But when you heal that anger, there's a direct correlation with the degree to which you are critical of others, which means you're not disconnecting from others, which means we will be able to connect more. So I just wanted to frame anger in that light. I hope that makes sense, that it's really, really powerful. And rather than just enduring it or gritting our teeth and bearing it, if we could practice that more actively and allow us allow ourselves to hold space for it and in more so to help other people our our daughters our sisters our friends to name what they're feeling and actually hold space for it versus grabbing their hand and saying let's get the hell out of here we will be doing each other a service Um, we will be helping each other to practice and strengthen that muscle that is rocket fuel that frankly i think will help us create even more change Okay then, so thanks for listening to this episode. And here's to living unscripted, having access to more of who we are, and letting our bright lights shine freely. Go ahead, be luminous.